hauling Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. We're awful glad you're here. On this episode, we'll hear how John Deere has joined the effort to make protective face shields for healthcare workers treating COVID 19 infected patients. And then RFD Radio Network's Rita Frazier shares an interview with Juliana Potts of the North American Meat Institute discussing meat demand during the COVID-19 pandemic. Finally, we'll hear from Dennis Stromat in the first of a two-part series. He's a true renaissance man and one heck of a musician. I can't wait for you to hear from him. Let's go! Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, John Deere has joined the efforts of other manufacturers across the country, aiding healthcare workers during the COVID-19 crisis by making face shields at their seeding group factory in Moline, Illinois. About 30 UAW production workers have been working hard for the past week to make the shields, and we wanted to bring in David Adavianelli, the Director of Strategic Products, Labor Relations for John Deere, to talk about the project. David, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks for uh, having us on fast track today. Well, it's definitely my pleasure to have you in here. And you've got something really cool here. This uh, uh, seeding plant uh, is at the point where usually you guys are, are kind of ramping down for the year. You produce uh, planters for the company from uh, uh, summertime around July to uh, about this time. But there was a need to uh, keep some people around and you, you guys are doing a really cool thing here. Yeah, Brent, thanks for uh, reaching out on this. Um, we couldn't have been prouder of the, our act actions of our employees and the initiative that they've taken in this. You're right. So we're using our seeding factory to um, establish the processes and to build these face shields for our external community um, neighbors and those healthcare professionals that are really the true heroes in this fight against the, the virus, those frontline healthcare workers that are situated in our communities throughout this. Our seeding factory is... Um, really that local source that we're utilizing the resources that we have available to efficiently and quickly make these face shields so that we can get them out to the folks, uh, healthcare professionals that need them. So you guys uh, made the initial commitment uh, to, to make there in Moline, Illinois, 25,000 uh, face shields for U.S. healthcare workers and then have ordered materials for another 200,000 shields. Is that correct? That's correct, Brent. Yeah, we've um, actually, of the 25,000 as of today, we're delivering up to uh, 19,000 of those already. So the factory is doing an excellent job of gathering that material uh, efficiently and with high quality, building those shields uh, to get them out. Like I said earlier, those factory leadership and managers are uh, delivering the uh, materials to the local healthcare providers in their uh, communities. Our goal is to continue to build, and right now we have additional orders on on uh, material on order for another 200,000 shields, and maybe even potentially beyond that. Material is the key element to all this, and uh, our supply management personnel and professionals have done an excellent job of establishing relationships with suppliers that we normally don't do business with um, to get this project going. 
and our teams have done a wonderful, creative job of transforming that material as quickly as possible into into these shields that the medical fields can use. So how did John Deere's involvement in this effort come about? Yeah, you know, the first element of this is we reached out to the local government agencies and worked with a number of different folks to, to uh, on this collaborative uh, event here to, to work on really, hey, what is the critical need and what do we need to work on here? Um, that first, some of those are, of course, you know, the Iowa Department of Homeland Security, the Governor's Office, Illinois Manufacturers Association, which is in contact with the Illinois Governor's Office, and then those physicians in local hospitals. And really, um, in our discussions with our employees, um, it, we, we knew that we had to do something, right? So, um, and then this led to our, this personal connection that we have with these healthcare professionals and these conversations and let our employees take action. We knew that we needed to do more and we could utilize the resources in our facility to help those true heroes in this fight to do it. So you guys are using an open source design for these healthcare masks that was designed by the University of Wisconsin. Walk me through what that looks like when you first get the idea to, to jump into the fray here and start doing this, because this is a plant that's geared toward building planters, not face shields. So there are tooling concerns. Uh, there's just uh, the uh, whole production line, how this is going to flow through logistically. And then you're right, procurement of the uh, materials that you need at a time when uh, many people are out there trying to get those materials. So from a 30,000 foot view, what does all of that in totality look like? Yeah, Brent, right on. That open source design helped give us the idea of what we needed to do. We really received the bulk plastic in, in rolls. We prepare it we do a pressing operation with a steel die rule. Our, our production, our maintenance and production employees actually designed a uh, die, a steel die to help press and to uh, make the face shield design on multiple sheets so that we're able to do that, cutting cutting the edge of that. We assemble the foam elastic band. And then we also transformed where we send the product down our main lines and set up multiple stations so that we can assemble these shields quickly and then get them packaged and delivered uh, in an efficient manner. On the back end of this, it's now once again on logistics and our, our, our logistics personnel to make sure that we get these delivered to the key officials and uh, government officials quickly. Well, and you had to make much quicker work of this than you would have if you were having to retool for a new planter line. Normally, um, in these processes, take sometimes, if not weeks, sometimes months to set up. But the high level of engagement and passion around this project by our employees um, really led to creating this type of process and setting it up instead of months within days. So our tool and die makers played a phenomenal role in setting up the steel die and that whole process and experimenting that within a matter of days. And it's really just a testament to all of our employees and how passionate they were about making a difference for our healthcare providers. And once those first few started rolling off the line, I understand uh, you were able to hit the ground running and, and really turn out a high quality product from the get go. Yeah, our feedback from our first couple of uh, shields that were built from the local professionals was extremely positive. 
It continues to be positive when we uh, ship more to those healthcare organizations and uh, the team continues to find uh, more material to, to fill into this process and to create even more efficient ways to make this material so that we can deliver more in this critical time of need. So from a personal standpoint, tell, tell me about what the mood and the morale is like when you're doing this. Because, I mean, we're talking about something that rivals kind of a uh, wartime effort that we really haven't even seen uh, since maybe going back to World War II. It's been amazing to see our employees and their passion and to see them in action. We are so proud of what they're doing and their desire to do more. And they are really the real stars of this whole operation and making it happen. Their personal stories as I walk through the factory and talk to them about what it means to them are emotional. And um, they are so excited to do uh, their part in helping those healthcare professionals overcome this virus. And it really hit them, uh, hit everyone in the company um, in the heart, and we knew that we wanted to, to do more. And our, te- our team at Seeding has been phenomenal. I mean, you talk about a collaborative effort from the UAW and the IAM representative employees at John Deere and the salary staff to support this. It's been an all hands on deck to make this happen and, and make sure that it's happened um, and quickly. So we can get it out there, and the need continues to grow. Um, you know, you guys are are still in a production facility, and we've heard a lot of stories out there about uh, COVID nineteen being spread through production facilities. But you guys have have taken a lot of measures to make sure that you're staying safe, including building uh, up to eighteen thousand of these face shields for for use by John Deere factory workers as well. Yeah, you're correct, Brent. Um, as you have heard, our factories continue to run in support of our farmers and infrastructure workers, which have been deemed essential to our economy and our communities. And be assured, protecting our employees is our number one priority. Moreover, we are proud of the measures that we've taken to safeguard our employees' physical, financial, and emotional well-being. We're in the process of implementing employee screening as they come to work providing additional personal protective equipment like these internal shields, different design than the medical one, more of an industrial shield to help them when we're uh, producing in our factories. We also issue social distancing guidelines and continue to invest in enhanced cleaning and sanitation. We're providing an environment where our employees are protected so they can continue to run our factories to help support those essential needs. Well, we should mention that the initial healthcare masks uh, that are being made there at the John Deere seating plant are, are being delivered to 16 U.S. John Deere facilities in eight states, as well as the U.S. Deere Hitachi factory. So these are going right into the communities to aid right, right where the, the, the folks who, who make John Deere products live and work. That's our first priority for the uh, distribution of the first 25,000. And we continue to receive additional requests from those local areas. And then we'll continue to work with the government officials in our states and to make sure that we're um, 
sending any additional shields that we are able to produce to where the need is the highest. So it's going on on a number of different levels. And uh, once the word gets out, people continue to ask about if they can um, receive some, some more shields from us so the requests continue to come in. Well, David, we've talked a lot about the manufacturing of face shields, but John Deere and its employees are doing quite a few other things here to help in the fight against COVID-19, including PPE donations and a company employee match program for donations to local food banks and the American Red Cross. Yes, Brent, you're, you're right on. There's a number of different initiatives. Um, you can see at, at johndeere.com our COVID-19 resource or response site list all those different activities that have going on that company continues to support on many fronts this fight against COVID-19. As you mentioned, also employees uh, volunteering to sew masks for community members, uh, including a match from the John Deere Foundation for time invested in that activity. So, so much going on there. Uh, from the folks at John Deere. And David, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule here to talk with us about it. And uh, we wish you the best of luck as things progress. Fred, thank you for uh, covering this story. And, you know, just a few final comments on this. Um, We'd like to send a big final thank you to all the healthcare professionals for everything you're doing in this fight against the virus. We know you're the true heroes on this, in this, and we, um, We're trying our best to continue to help out as much as we can, and we appreciate everything that you're doing. Well, we certainly second those sentiments, and David, we look forward to speaking with you sometime down the road. Okay, Brent. Thank you. And that was David Aravianelli, the Director of Strategic Products, Labor Relations for John Deere. Well, next up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, there's been a lot of talk about meat prices and in some cases meat scarcity in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Rita Frazier of the RFD Radio Network sat down with Juliana Potts of the North American Meat Institute to get a better understanding of what's behind the current demand for meat. She shared with us this report. Juliana Potts is president and CEO of the North American Meat Institute That represents 95% of red meat packers and processors in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. She paints us the picture of life today in her industry. We have members all across the country and of all sizes, from the very large uh, packers that are processing thousands of head of cattle and thousands of hogs a day, all the way to small, independent, uh, family-owned processors meat makers that um, are in your local communities. All of them have been impacted and all of them are working hard to continue to move meat through the system and into your retail establishments to keep food on the table during this crisis. As far as overall safety from start to finish, uh, once those animals leave the farm until they get to consumers' plates, talk a little bit about the safety aspect during this COVID-19 pandemic? First of all, I think it's really important for consumers to understand that there's no way to get COVID from the food. And we were very happy to see very early on uh, USDA, the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC all put out you know, statements to that effect that people need not worry about their food. So that's one aspect of the safety question. But the other is, of course, we are so grateful to our workers. They are really the heroes and the first responders in, in this crisis. Together with our healthcare workers, all of us who are asked 
to shelter in place across the country are able to do so because these folks in very difficult conditions are continuing to go into the plant and to process our food so that it makes its way onto the truck where truckers are still bringing it from distribution centers into your grocery store where you can get it. Uh, and there is still plenty of food and plenty of meat in the system. And so we are really grateful to them as a community of people who are working through this crisis and doing everything that we can in the plants to keep them safe. Some of those measures include temperature checks before the start of every shift, extra enhanced sanitation, social distancing within the plant, such as on donning and doffing your, your all your safety gear, and also, you know, cafeterias and even on the line, where things have had to slow down a bit, but the health and safety of the workforce being primary concern. And so all of these efforts have been to relieve the pressure in the plant that people feel for their safety. Masks are also being worn and provided by companies. And so we're doing everything we can to ensure, like everywhere else, that if you have to be at work and you have to be in one of these essential, critical infrastructure industries, that you are as safe as you can possibly be during this pandemic. You just bring us up to speed on, on where we are as far as the plants that have been impacted and what we know today. There have been COVID-positive tests that have been discovered in the plant workforce, just like everywhere else in our community. But there have been protocols in place, in fact, the industry, both at, at the trade association level, as well as each individual company, and the entire food supply. So working in tandem with trucking and distribution and port on down the line, there's a lot that goes into getting the food from the farm to the fork. Everyone together has been putting protocols in place. So for example, uh, you have a, a, a positive in a plant, and those folks obviously are removed, and people who were around uh, that that individual are also asked to self-quarantine. As that has happened, some of the both safety measures that are taking place as well as the reduction in staff have, have meant some slowdowns so that the capacity, especially in the slaughter side of things, the capacity has been somewhat reduced. A couple of places have had to close for additional sanitation and then reopen. And so part of the, the uh, equation here is additional testing, additional uh, personal protective equipment, uh, the supplies of which, you know, are also uh, very, very important to the healthcare industry. And so while we understand that our healthcare workers on the front lines are, you know, priority number one uh, in the food supply, we are priority 1A, if you will. You said something really interesting, sort of shining a spotlight on these folks who maybe don't get a lot of attention. We in agriculture kind of bemoan the fact that most of the country and most of the people who don't have a connection to agriculture really don't understand how that gallon of milk or how that, uh, that, that ribeye shows up, you know, in the meat case. This has been a real opportunity for us to kind of put on display, even under normal circumstances, the, the, the lovely people who are so dedicated and who work hard to put those things in your grocery store because they don't just get there by accident. It, there's a huge and very efficient and, and inexpensive network uh, uh, in the agricultural community as well as in the food manufacturing system that allows us to do what we're doing now, which is, you know, all of the rest of us to be able to stay home and take care of our families. 
Wonderful. We mentioned talking on Good Friday and this weekend. Um, hopefully a lot of Easter hams will be purchased. Maybe talk to that a little bit and, you know, the, the importance of just that family dinner and, again, uh, utilizing those farm-raised products. That is exactly right. Um, and I think you, you make an excellent point that people uh, most of the time don't think about how interconnected everything is uh, in our communities uh, to produce food. We have seen incredible demand at the grocery stores um, since this started, and not just because, and not just because people are, are eating at home or hoarding. We believe that people have turned to their favorite um, meat products, hamburger, that favorite steak, bacon, that, that these things, people are eating and feeding their families three meals at home a day, but it's emotionally comforting. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of family history and good uh, feeling about uh, foods that make you feel good that have flown off the shelves during this pandemic. It's nutritious. I think um, the, the calorie density of meat uh, for the amount of protein, bite for bite, people do understand that. And even if they are exploring other things, in this crisis, we have seen people turn to meat for its uh, familiarity, comfort, and um, emotionally gratifying center of the plate position. And so we're watching that very carefully because it's something that we want to continue to understand our restaurant, our food supply uh, industry, of course, has, has suffered greatly, and, uh, and we're very concerned that our producers also uh, have benefited for, from all of the things that we are learning through this. Uh, our pork producers, our lamb, our beef producers, our poultry producers, they are all hurting in, in, uh, in some way due to the pandemic, and we're acutely aware and doing everything we can to ensure the integrity of that supply chain as well. Just wonderful information. Anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to leave us with, your, your, uh, your take-home? If- my personal thanks. I am home with my husband, three teenagers, and a dog. I guess we're going on our fifth week now, and I am personally grateful to all the people who are able to let us do this, uh, to, to stay home, to eat well, and to, to be able to be safe uh, and, and well-fed during this pandemic because of the sacrifices and the challenges that they are facing and making uh, to, to be able to go to work. And so just my personal thanks to from the farmers to the truckers, distributors, and workers in our plants. Very grateful. Well, finally this week, I defy you to find a more fascinating soul in the country music world than Dennis Stromat. The Illinois native is a specialist in North American French and Creole language, culture, and music. He also is a student of traditional country music and Western swing. The Heart of Texas Records artist sings and plays many instruments and is an ace on the fiddle, being inducted in 2015 into the Old Time Fiddlers Hall of Fame as a honky-tonk Creole swing fiddler. Not many folks can lay that kind of claim to fame. I hope you'll enjoy the first of my two-part conversation with Dennis Stromat and then some of his great music. Dennis uh, got on my radar screen a couple years ago uh, listening to some of his music uh, with my good buddy Billy Bowles in uh, Lubbock, Texas, KSSL-FM, Billy Bowles Swinging Country. And he's also uh, performed a number of times on the Ernest Tubb at Midnight Jamboree, which is presented by our presenting sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. And... uh, 
Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they had to cancel his performance here in light of all the COVID-19 stuff. And I was pretty bummed about that. So I was honored uh, when I reached out to him and uh, and he was able to come on here. And uh, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Oh, yeah, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm excited. And, uh, you know, it's great that we can do interviews from our house. Yeah, yeah. We, In light of everything going on right now. I'd be pretty stuck if we couldn't, right? <laughs> to be honest with you. Because the way we had everything set up, we were doing recording sessions in Nashville, and I'd pretty much exhausted all of uh, the content I had here. So I thought, well, we got to come up with something. And this is, uh, as I told on the show last week, this is something I've been wanting to do for a while, is uh, reach out to some of the other artists that uh, don't get through Nashville as much, and I know there's so many of them. You know, the Billy features on his program there that uh, have ties to the Academy of Western Artists and so many great uh, folks uh, throughout the South and and, and West that uh, we want to make sure that they're represented well, too, because I think that that music uh, is really well received uh, by, by our audience in rural America. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of the music that we play, I mean, basically these, <laughs> these are just our stories, the stories of our life, what's going on. And I have a feeling there are going to be a lot of songs written about what's happening right now. Yeah. For, you know, for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just hope, uh, hope all the artists can hang on long enough to be able to do that here. I know it's a tough time for everybody. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, financially, emotionally, you know, good time to uh, sit back and write songs. And, uh, you know, I, I've been spending a lot of time watching everybody's uh, live streams on social media here. And uh, I, I know they're doing what they can, but everybody just wants to get back to life as normal here. Sure, sure. Well, you know, you try to, and, you know, and sometimes life can just be so fast. You know, it just pushes us and pushes us. And in some ways, you know, for some of us, maybe we need to slow it down a little bit anyway. Yeah. And, you know, and, and take a little time. And, and, and I know personally, um, as much as I'm bummed out, I mean, I, I, my story is the story of thousands of other musicians out there right now, performers, artists, you know, have lost multiple shows. Mm-hmm. Events. But in some ways, you know, uh, there, there's a you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I see for a lot of the the events that I'm doing, you know, I see a lot of them being rescheduled. You know, to next year. You know, to different times. And and you know, if I can come back to them, you know, and I hope that that will happen for a lot of musicians out there that you'll be able to come back to them or reschedule them. Um, you know, for some of us, maybe having some downtime is great. You know, just having some time with family. You know, and because uh, I've got two small girls, and and I never get to spend enough time with them, and uh, they're always they're always bummed that I'm gone all the time, mm-hmm. and and r- right now I'm home, I'm yeah. home twenty four seven, and I haven't been able to spend this much time with my girls since they were born, so uh, for me, you know, it, it, it's kind of a double edged sword. I mean, it's you know, it's a terrible time. It, it really is. But, but in the same regard, I'm getting to spend, you know, the time with my family that I've never gotten to spend sure. you know, since, since my girls were born. And, uh, and so, 
sometimes life maybe forces things on you that you you need. You know, not that we all need the COVID-19. I'm not saying that at all. But for personally, you know, slowing me down, um, just even for a little while, is definitely not a bad thing, you know, and gives a person opportunity, perspective, and, uh, you know, kind of work on yourself, too. For sure. Right now. Well, you talk about your story being similar to others, but I would have to say if there's one person that I've had on this show who I would call a renaissance man, it would have to be you. If you could... Take me behind the scenes uh, of your musical journey. How did you get started? And uh, just kind of walk me along this winding road that you've traveled throughout your career. Oh, wow. Boy, it, yeah, it, it is definitely a wild one. I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, you know, I really kind of focus on my dad uh, so much. Um, my dad, Jack Stromat, he, he was never, he was not, he was not a player. Uh, he was um, he was a listener. Uh, I mean, he had a huge, huge record collection, 5,000 records. Wow. And when I mean records, I mean vinyl. <laughs> and uh, and this is what I listened to, you know, as a little kid. He was a huge fan, you know, of Bob Wills. He was a huge fan of Ray Price. He, he loved Tony Booth. He loved Johnny Bush. You know, he, he loved Guy Lombardo. And he loved to listen to Jan Garber. He loved to listen to Art Castle. You know, a lot of big band music and great singers. And and, and my dad was a great singer. Uh, no one outside of the house would have ever known that. Um, but my dad was a phenomenal singer. He really was. And, and I don't say that just because he was my dad. He really was. And I even have recordings of him, you know, that were made some unbeknownst to him. Um, and he, he was just one of those guys that listened to music and understood it so much. And so when I was coming up as a kid, he exposed me to such great music and encouraged me consistently to the point that, I mean, when I was four years old, and five years old, that I'm, I'm out on my porch of my house with my brother running an air band basically, you know, and we're just having fun. And I was fortunate that I had great uncles that played music and they tried to get me to play guitar when I was five, you know, they, they started me doing this and my parents then, you know, gave me opportunities and got a piano for me when I was seven and said, Hey, you know, you, you should learn to play piano. And well, not too long after that, I got a drum set and, you know, it's just a story I can say of a lot of people, though, that I've, I've, I listen to music and I wanted to play it. I Anything that I couldn't stop, you know, rhythmically, you'd, you'd hear things. And it's funny because I watch that with my girls now. They, they'll do that. They'll just tap. You know, they'll listen to things and they'll tap along with it. They'll hear a bird sing and they will try to tap in rhythm with a bird. Mm-hmm. I did that. You know, I couldn't get away from music because it's just such a part of me, you know, in that way. And, and you know, I listen to a lot of, like I say, a lot of my, my dad's music, a lot of Western swing, a lot of honky-tonk, you know, especially Ray Price. But, you know, as a kid, like I say, I kind of diverged in a lot of ways culturally because, I mean, where we are, and, and, you, and you know this, that we have, there's a lot of oil, like in South western indiana Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of oil in southeastern illinois and 
there were oil shows here back in the 50s, 1940s and 50s, 60s. And that brought a lot of musicians in, you know, from, you know, from Texas and Oklahoma, kind of affected our area, you know, quite a bit. And so when I was a kid, I started playing bands when I was in my teen years. I was playing drums and like country bands, but they weren't just country bands. They were Western swing bands, you know, in so many ways. And and so, you know, I was singing Bob Wills tunes when I was 16 and 17 years old in bands. Uh, playing drums Uh, at the same time that this was happening you know i was also very much influenced by vincennes indiana Uh, i was really into our french heritage uh, french uh, you know creole and colonial heritage around this area we have we talked about you know uh, the vincennes rendezvous i used to go to that i was familiar with some of the other events they would have at vincennes Uh, they used to do like a 12th night ball around new year's back in the seventies. And, and I was always interested in some of these events. And so that always, I was always really into our French heritage too. And so I've always kind of had this, you know, side of me that was really interested in a lot of the old country and Western swing music, uh, you know, that was kind of permeating our area. And then I was also interested in our old French history in this area. And so, Literally, I've always kind of gone back and forth between, you know, through the years and, and, um, and I played, like I say, played in country bands until I got in college. And then when I got into college, I kind of refocused, uh, into our French heritage, which led me into going to areas in southeastern, uh, I'm sorry, southeast Missouri and southwestern Illinois where there are a large number of French speaking people. And uh, these people are all essentially cousins to the French in Vincennes and around St. Francisville, Illinois, which is really close to me. And uh, so I started getting into that music. And when I learned to play fiddle, interestingly enough, even though I was playing drums in a band out of Mount Carmel, Illinois, that the fiddle player was Illinois State Fiddle Champ multiple, multiple times. I mean, he went back and forth every year. His name was Cloris Warlow, and he would win one year against Allison Krauss. He would beat Allison. Next year, Allison would beat him. And the next year, she would, or he would beat Allison. And this went back and forth for four or five years, you know, them doing this. And, and he was a fiddle player who had worked down in Oklahoma. And so he was very influenced uh, by Western swing music and, as much as I played it with him, I played drums for him. I didn't play fiddle at that time. When I started playing fiddle was when I go to the French areas uh, in southeast Missouri and start spending time in some of the French communities there. And when I learned to play fiddle, I don't learn to play Western swing or country. I learned to play old French Creole style. So, But it was funny because I still have all this you know, country and Western swing music in my head that, you know, kind of sits there, you know, and so I'm not, you know, it's so it's, it's kind of a weird place to be musically. You know, I would listen to Western swing, loved it, wanted to be around it, played it, but I didn't play it on the fiddle, uh, which was just kind of strange. And, you know, kind of fast forward, you know, through the nineties when I was in college and, like I say, living over in those communities over Missouri, 
I also eventually moved to Louisiana and uh, I work in Louisiana um, at a place called Vermilionville and I was an intern there and I worked uh, worked there as well as an assistant curator essentially and in the time that I was in the French areas I learned to speak French uh, I learned to speak Creole French, Missouri and Illinois French, essentially the same French as in since Indiana. So, um, you know, but every step you take, anytime you go to another area or, you know, find yourself in a different culture or something to add, that adds something onto you, you know, personally. And uh, that's what happened to me in Louisiana is, I have all of our Illinois French background, Illinois, Missouri, Indiana, and I have the language and the music from here. But then I go to Louisiana and start adding Cajun, and, uh, start learning about you know the Cajun uh, population, their music and Creole music, you know, Black Creole music in Louisiana, and I start learning how it was influenced by blues and. I was influenced, you know, by Western swing and, and there again, Western swing starts coming back in, you know, and, and the honky tonk sound, even in Louisiana, you know, it's there. And I started learning Cajun fiddling and worked with Cajun bands while I was working in Louisiana, you know, in the mid nineties, um, eventually come back to Southern Illinois, uh, you know, uh, I'm back to playing again a lot in the French communities in Southern Illinois and Southeast Missouri. Play in a Cajun band, have a French Creole band. But um, what kind of happens is while I'm in college in Carbondale, Illinois, is I heard about a jam session um, and I wanted to go uh, hang out. This I heard about this kind of like steel guitar, mini like steel guitar jam always been a huge steel guitar fan and in Carbondale and so I go and I find myself getting into the jam they see me there and I'm literally like the youngest guy in the room and I was I don't know probably 23 24 at the time and they invite me up to sing a song and, and I remember somebody said do you know the song Whiskey River and I was like yeah, I know that. And and they're like, no, you don't. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I do. I, they're like, well, what key? And I was like, I don't know. They're like, see, you don't know Whiskey River. And and they <laughs> just busted me <laughs> left and right. You know, and, and I just finally looked at the steel player and I said, well, what key does Johnny Bush do it in? And he goes, you know who Johnny Bush is? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know who Johnny Bush is. He goes, really? He said he does it in the key of E. And I said, well, do it in the key of E. He said, well, son, that's pretty high. He said, I don't know if you can sing that there. I don't know. Kick it off. We'll try. <laughs> <laughs> and and I ended up singing it. And all these guys are looking at me like, who's this kid? You know? And I, and it was funny because, you know, they started inviting me to other jam sessions. In and around Carbondale and Marion, Illinois, and Murfreesboro, they started asking me to, you know, come to things. Next thing you know, I get hired to play in a band. And um, kind of like right around that time, I was working at the museum 
uh, at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And I mean, literally, this is all happening at the same time. You know, it, it's weird how life just kind of takes you yeah. on a ride, <laughs> you know, and you just go with it. And I'm going over and hanging out in the French community. But I'm also starting to go to these jam sessions, you know, doing a lot of country and Western swing. And then at the very same time, I'm working at the museum at uh, Southern Illinois University and uh, work, doing a job there teaching. And uh, I'm assistant, uh, a, a teaching assistant. And we do an exhibit that the students themselves, not me, but the students in the class, um, as I was in graduate school, I was teaching. Students decide they want to do a an exhibit on Southern Illinois musicians. Mm-hmm. So we start putting together info about Southern Illinois musicians, and and a name that pops up from an album in the archives is Wade Ray. And so the students start researching Wade Ray and they asked me, they're like, have you ever heard of Wade Ray? And I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Pappy Wade Ray. I said, I've got his album, you know, down yonder in the country fiddlers. And, and, um, and dad used to talk about him, said the Wade Ray at one time, you know, had played for Ray price. And so I get to asking around some of these musicians and I knew there was an Illinois connection. And I started asking some of these guys who I just met, you know, in the in the previous month, if they'd ever heard of Wade Ray, well, the steel guitar player, um, a guy named Lee Brothers, says, well, yeah, I know Wade Ray. He said, I used to play with Wade. Wade just lives up the road up in Stingyville, huh. Sparta area. I'm like, are you kidding me? And he goes, no. I was like, oh, my God. I, I get on the phone, get a phone book. Of course, this is, you know, Internet's not really what it is today. You know, this is 1995, I think, and 96-something like that, and and so I get on the phone, I just look in the phone book, and there it is, Wade Ray. Huh. And I call him up, and I explain who I am, told him, you know, I'm working with this class, you know, at SIU, and was wondering if he would be interested in, you know, uh, maybe loaning the museum, you know, some music, sheet music or something, you know, for the exhibit. And, and he said, sure. He said, won't you come up, come up to the house and meet me? He said, let's talk. See what you're really interested in. He said, I've got other things here that you might want. So we ended up, um, I didn't tell him that I was a fiddle player. And uh, I just went there with a, another friend of mine, a guy that he and I are lifelong friends. We met at SIU and he was a great drummer, fantastic drummer, banjo player, guitar player. And he, he and I both go to Wade Ray's house and in Sparta and um, spent a couple hours with him. You know, I didn't, neither of us told him that we played anything. I'm afraid of the man. <laughs> More than and he was the nicest guy in the world, but I mean, you know, Wade Ray, I mean, this guy, he's like, you know, I mean, he's one of the world's greatest fiddle players and, and, you know, performer and a legend. And, and, and so, you know, we hang out and, you know, he does, he, he, he says, tell you what, I've got a violin or a fiddle. I'll loan you guys for your exhibit. And he, he loans us some records and some sheet music of heart of a clown, the original sheet music for heart of a clown. Yeah. He loaned, loaned it to, loaned to us. 
But he also loans us this violin, this fiddle, this electric fiddle that's the Fender. It's a Fender violin or Fender, Fender electric fiddle. He has the paperwork with it that it was the prototype. Wow. Zero, zero, one. It was the very first solid body Fender electric fiddle <laughs> built by Leo Fender in 1957. And I think, you know, he started issuing them for sale in 58. Wade Ray, you know, was a kind of a rep for Fender at the time. And so everybody in his band had Fender equipment. Curly Chalker playing Fender 1000, you know, they had Fender basses, Fender amps. Everybody was using a basement in his band in Vegas at the time. So he had a Fender violin. They even had, it wasn't a, he, he laughed. He said, well, our drum set wasn't Fender, but it was a Ludwig. But he said, we had to put a Fender logo on it <laughs> <laughs> because, because of their deal with Leo Fender. But he even had a violin for him to play, you know, a, an electric. And so that's what we had in the exhibit. And after the exhibit was over in about three months, you know, I took his stuff back to him and he wanted to know how it went. You know, and in that mean in that time, you know, we would talk on the phone about once a week, you know, about the exhibit, what was going on. He get, you know, was interviewed for it, and and I went back and took his stuff back to him. And when we talked, you know, we got to talking about music in general, and you know, just the history of it, and started learning about his connection, you know, with Ray Price, you know, having actually recorded on the Western Strings album in '64, and been a front man for Ray and, you know, and all of his connections with Bob, you know, and several, I guess you might say a month or two went by. I'd go back and visit every three or four weeks. It was only 40 minutes. I'd drive up from Carbondale and go visit him. And, but I never took my fiddle and I never mentioned anything about playing. Um, but I would ask him a lot of questions. And finally he says to me, well, maybe my third visit back, he goes, son, he says, you know, I'm starting to wonder if you play instruments. <laughs> and I was like, why? He said, well, because you keep asking me how to like hold your hand, how I'm making these certain chords on the fiddle and, you know, what I'm doing to, you know, be, you know, faster in my fingering. Do you play? And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I do. I said, I, I play more like French music, you know, and kind of Cajun and he goes, well, well, show me something. So he goes and gets his fiddle, one of his fiddles, and he brings it in. He sits down and puts it. He goes, here. So I, I don't remember what I played, but I think I remember, like, trying to play Devil's Dream or something like that for him. And uh, <laughs> he, he kind of smiles a little bit, and he says, well, son, he says, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> he says he said, if you want to come back, he said, um, I'll see if I can help you. And that kind of started off. That was the first like real lessons you might, might say I ever took, oh, you know, from anybody and was from Wade Ray. And I started going and visiting him. That's priceless. Know? Yeah. So that's, so that's kind of what I guess you might say brought me you know, into playing, you know, more Western swing and honky tongs. I'd always been kind of into French music and, and, and Wade 
kind of took me in a different direction. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of my conversation with Dennis Stromat. And now I want to bring you a couple of his songs. First up, the song Rubber Dolly, which was recorded by Roy Hall in the 1940s and later made a hit by Ray Price and the Cherokee Cowboys. Dennis has a new tribute album out to Ray Price, and I hope you'll check it out at honkytonkfiddle.com. The song features Dennis on the fiddle, Pete Wade on guitar, Willie Rainsford on piano, Rick Van Aw on drums, and Wade Bernard on bass. Dennis Stromat and his guys with Rubber Dolly. And now I want to give you a taste of his Creole fiddling side with the song Boye Stomp. It features Dennis on vocals and fiddle, Wade Bernard on guitar and bass, and Rob Crumb on mandolin and backing vocals.
told you you won't find another artist more fascinating than Dennis Stromat. We'll have more from him next week, so please come back for that. We want to thank our friends at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway, in the heart of Nashville, Tennessee, for making that performance possible. We hope when the shop reopens, you'll go and support them. They have a great selection of traditional country music on CD and vinyl and a huge selection of really cool merchandise. You can check them out at etrecordshop.com. And while you're searching the internet in your downtime, head on over to FastLine.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. And while you're on the website, don't forget to sign up to receive the print catalog for your state or region. Even through this pandemic, the FastLine catalog is still being delivered to your mailbox. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the FastLine Fast Track podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio. Also, be sure to follow FastLine Fast Track on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. We also want to say that we were honored last week to be named among the top 35 podcasts in agriculture on Feedspot as compiled by Anuj Agarwal. We'll add a link to the complete list in the show notes, and we hope you'll check it out. Next week, we'll keep you up to date on the latest information on how COVID-19 is affecting the agriculture industry. We'll also talk spring planting pitfalls. Until then, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back. 
and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com.